Take your Bible, turn to Isaiah 46. We'll be covering 46 and 47, but largely focusing on 46. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, and they bow down together, and they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant, the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, Carried from the womb even to your old age, I am he, and to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver and scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, and then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you, are, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel is my glory. Let's pray. Lord, would you please give life and light to our minds and hearts that we may understand and believe your word For Christ's sake, amen. I don't know if you've followed the news this week with Israel and Hamas. Uh, I found it unbearable and interesting, both at the same. To see the great acts of terror that one um, terrorist organization has foisted upon a nation in the response that nation has reiterated as one who studies rhetoric kind of for a living, listening to some of the speeches and 
uh, how finely crafted they've been. You've heard a number of um, perfect examples of rhetoric and politics. Netanyahu gave one. Um, Mayor of uh, New York City gave another. I think one of the more kind of disheartening things, though, has been listening to kind of the rank-and-file Jew as they've tried to process such great loss. Right? Such great loss. I mean, it's weird to think about some of the stats you kind of pay attention to. Like, I, I think it was that first invasion day was the largest number of Jews to die in a single day since World War II. Right? Since Hitler. That's wild to think about. And then to hear as a, as a nation, and a nation that was in some sense a people group founded in the Old Testament, but then not recognized who the Messiah is, Jesus Christ, as they begin to kind of nationally and corporately mourn and grieve and articulate their loss. I saw another article I found the most interesting where uh, one of the rabbis who's been the most articulate uh, in explaining their loss and the hope of the Old Testament, uh, they're beginning to wonder now if he's even the Messiah, if even the Lord himself has used this terrible act of terror to show them who the Messiah is. I'm like, oh, oh, you've missed the point. Yet again, even as we talked about in Sunday school in Romans 9, a nation that started well, but missed the point. In fact, though, it has been, I guess, for me and maybe some others, some of you have thought this way, uh, an opportunity to contemplate how we think about loss, how we think about grief, how we think about sadness and sorrow, how we would process it in light of our theology. Right? If somebody were to go town door to door through our town, Fort Mill, executing family members in front of each other, going in order from youngest to oldest so that dad watches his whole family go. How would we speak about the realities of who our God is? How would we speak about the realities of His promises to us? How would we speak about His faithfulness and His trustworthy nature? How would we speak about the goodness of our God. It's easy for us to kind of sanitize so many of these passages in the Old Testament and to have them kind of delivered and thought about within the confines of our perfectly peaceful and largely safe lives. But that's not how they were written, mostly the prophets particularly. They're written probably more kind of emotionally correct from where Israel has been this week than where Fort Mill has been last week. Largely a, a time in history in which this nation had turned from Israel, had turned from God, and was in process of being kind of wiped off the map by Assyria and Babylon Again, that being wiped off the map was not through kind of you know, very clever you know, lawyers doing some form of a hostile takeover. Right? It wasn't like one of the banks here in Charlotte. A very clever CEO comes in with a smaller bank, buys the bigger bank, and then fires all their employees because his lawyers are better than the other ones. 
No, when these nations were, were captured and conquered, it was violent, vile and terrible. That's why so many of these you hear of just the atrocities of war showing up again and again through the prophets. Here as we end, kind of enter into the end of the book of Isaiah, it's with that kind of looming background. I mean, if you really kind of wanted to emotionally prepare yourself, you would have to think that so much of this book, it's Isaiah saying, Israel, you need to obey the Lord because he has promised that Hamas is coming. Israel, you need to obey the Lord because he has promised the night of Hamas is coming. And then preparing them for what will happen after that takes place. What will, what will happen when Babylon comes in and invades the southern kingdom and takes them off the map and transplants the people of God to a foreign nation? What will happen when all of the best and the beautiful and the brilliant are taken away to be forced to become like Gentiles? What will happen when your priests are desecrated? What will happen when... All of the artifacts in your temple are taken away and used in the service of foreign gods. What will happen? What will you think of your God then? And here we have, in 46, largely kind of a a different tactic attempting to get us to learn the same thing. I love the Lord's patience with His people. It is what makes these kind of books sometimes a little challenging to read, though, is it it feels like they're saying the same thing over and over and over and over again, and the reason why it feels like they're saying the same thing over and over and over and over again is because they are saying the same thing over and over and over again, but with slight variations and altering the illustrations in an effort to hopefully get people that are slightly dull of wit, like me, to understand it and believe it. And chapter 46 does that. It's a, a challenge to trust in the Lord, to believe in God, and to rest in Him, but with a slight variation on a theme. Why should I trust this God? Why should I rest in this God? Why should I rely on this God? Well, first... He explains he's the God who carries his people. He is the God who carries his people. He begins really with a, it's almost a comedic illustration. I I love the silliness of it. As he kind of compares the reality of other gods versus him. The reality of false gods versus him. The reality of other things we might trust in versus him. Bell bows down and Nebo stoops. And already we're like, I'm out. I don't know who Bell and Nebo are and don't really care. Well, Babylonian gods. Marduk, right? These are the bad gods. These are the false gods. These are the common gods of the land. Those that would have been commonly worshipped by the average person you would run into. And these gods bow down and stoop. Why? Well, their idols are going to be transplanted. Here now, uh, kind of mocking Babylon as their gods are carried away by Cyrus, who will be coming to invade Babylon with the Medes and Persians. What's going to happen to these false gods? What's going to happen to their idols? What's going to happen to them? Well, 
They're going to be captured ultimately. And how are they going to be captured? And you have this kind of mockery really from God. It's intended to be biting sarcasm. That's how it's supposed to read. These false gods of Bel and Nebo will be taken away into captivity. How? By having their idols strapped onto the back of donkeys and transported across the sands. All right, your idols are born on beasts and livestock. The things you carry are born on burdens on weird beasts. Your gods are so great. And so powerful, these false gods, that when it comes time for them to be saved, it's reliant upon their worshipers to evacuate them. They're reliant upon their worshipers to put them onto the back of beasts of burden and to get them away. They're reliant upon their worshipers. What kind of God is that? What kind of God is it that is entirely reliant upon the strength of its worshipers to be successful. I mean, it's not a very good God, really. I mean, you think about that. If we were to kind of evaluate Christianity by that metric, how great our God is by the strength of his worshipers. And then I know myself. I know you. That's not a, not a, a, a ringing endorsement for our God. In fact, that's actually the point he makes to them. It's like, look, you, these false gods, look at, <coughs> excuse me, look at how puny they are. They can't even save themselves. They get carried out into captivity on the backs of beasts of burden. But there is a contrast. There is a contrast. Verses 3 and 4, the Lord holds himself up here in contrast to show his people he's different. Listen to me, people of God. Listen to me, you who have been born by me from before your birth. I love that. He, He knows his people by name. Listen, you, my children, I have carried you every day. Carried you from the womb. I've carried you into old age. I've carried you into gray hairs, which hit some of us before old age. I've carried you every day of your life. I've made you. I will bear you. I will carry you. I will save you. I I love just this kind of ridiculous contrast that we have. In the first two verses, he, he highlights the, the silliness of the false gods with these idols being loaded on the back of beasts. And then the reality of the great God that we're riding piggyback on the King of kings and Lord of hosts. Like what, what a, what a ri- kind of ridiculous contrast it is that he presents the reality of his loving care as he is worthy of your worship, he's worthy of your devotion because he gathers you into his arms and carries you even on the days you do not know it happens. And I love that kind of even in kind of calling forth our worship, he's ministering to us tenderly. 
To think about it as, as some of us, we go through hard days. When we go through hard days, whether that be through sickness or sin, whether we go through conflict or whatever else it is in our lives, to know that great promise of God that He, he bears us up in His arms, that He carries us every step of the way, that we're unable to get out of His grasp, unable to get away from His loving arms, our great God shelters us and strengthens us, holds us, and bears us up. This is a good reminder, particularly for those of us that think perhaps we've kind of come to the end of our rope. We're like, that's it. That's the line. Thus far and no further. I can't make it. One more step. I can't do it. I can't do it. Well, friends, that's okay. He carries you. You don't have to give up. We don't quit. We don't walk away because the reality is He's been the one bearing us up all along. He's been the one carrying our burdens for us. I often think of this kind of like if, if you've ever been a, a, a parent or a dad of young children, there have been those times at some point along the way where you've had to move some piece of furniture. And it's not particularly heavy for dad at least. And uh, so dad picks up the piece of furniture and has to carry it throughout the house or whatever else. And the, and the little child decides that they're going to come help. Right? And they get their hands under it and try to, to bear as much weight as they can. And it's just like crushing the kid as they move. And, and dad's like, I mean, I've got it. <laughs> like, I can carry it with one hand, but all right, fine. Right? By the time you get it into the bedroom where it's supposed to go or whatever, the kid's like broken a sweat. They're like, oh, I need to go lay down and take a nap. And dad's like, I mean, okay, we're good. <laughs> I got it. It's fine. And so often that's kind of in many ways how we approach our relationship with the Lord, where the Lord is, he's more than competent to bear all of our burdens. And not just our burdens, but us along the way. And then we, like that small child, are like, no, I'm determined. Doggone it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to carry my own burdens. I'm strong enough. I'm powerful. I'm going to do it. And it just wears us out, makes us miserable, leaves us discouraged, overwhelmed, preponderously sad and burnt out. I personally, I suspect that's one of the reasons why kind of our, our current American culture, we're beginning to see burnout kind of now, I guess, what, two or three decades of it really setting into our culture because we've determined as a people group, we're going to do it ourselves. We're not going to trust the Lord and really kind of in some ways get rid of his day the day that's set aside to be strengthened by him. He, here in verses 1 through 4, says, well, you should trust me because I'm going to carry you. I'm going to bear you along. I will bear you and all of your burdens. Well, maybe that gets it for you. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's not the one that resonates with you. So he takes a different tactic, explains a different portion of who he is, a different aspect of his character to say, well, I'm the God that's capable I'm the God that's capable. Verses 5 through 11, we get to see him lay this out. 
To whom will you liken me and make me equal? Who are you going to compare me to? Let's do a comparison again. Let's compare me to all of the other false gods. Those other things, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh it out in silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and then they fall down and worship it. So uh, already, where does this god come from? Well, it's just somebody's pocketbook that's materialized into a thing. But they fall down to worship it, and I love this illustration, they have to lift it to their shoulders to carry it, to take it to the place that they're going to put it to worship it. Right? The bigger and the greater the God, the more people it takes to carry it so they can put it on the piece of furniture where it's going to sit. The bigger and the greater the God, the more burdensome it is. The more people it takes to move it, the more effort it takes to put it on the stand where you will worship it. And then once it gets there, what is the quality of this God? Well, it can't move. If you, if you talk to it, it doesn't talk back. If you need help, it's not able to answer. It's not mighty to save. The Lord, on the other hand, is mighty to save. Verse 9, I'm the God. I am God. There, like, sorry, I am God and there is no other. I am God. There's none like me. Declaring from uh, the end, from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. I am the God who does things. My counsel will stand. I will accomplish all of my purposes. I do what I say I'm going to do. I've always done what I said I was going to do, and I've never once been frustrated. I'm the God who causes things to happen. I make them happen, and I make them happen the way that I want them to happen. As proof of that, verse 11, Cyrus is going to come and destroy the Babylonians that came and destroyed the Assyrians that came and destroyed the Israelites. That's what's going to happen because I wanted it to. Because I've spoken, I'm going to bring it to pass, I've purposed, and I will do it. I will make it happen. I'm the God who carries you, and I'm the God that accomplishes what I've set out to do, as opposed to the false gods. And this is probably the point in the sermon where you're like, okay, Michael, I agree with that. Maybe you've already stopped listening. I agree with that, but like, it's not like I often see false gods today. Unless I eat at an Indian restaurant, perhaps I might go to a Thai restaurant or something like that, but unless I eat in certain types of restaurants, I will almost certainly never see false gods today, right? It's not like we go out to our neighbor's houses and, okay, after flag football game or whatever, you stop in at coach house and you walk in, there's most of the time anymore, at least here, you're not a giant Buddha that you have to genuflect to or whatever when you walk in. We just don't see false gods like this. And as a result, I think there's probably a little bit of an an easy defeatism for most Christians when we read passages like this, where we say, well, those gods are ludicrous, obviously. Of course our God is greater than that. But then we don't actually stop to evaluate our own false gods. The things that we worship, we, we don't tend to worship concrete gods anymore. One's encased in gold. Now I suspect our gods tend to be far more subtle and probably significantly more abstract and prideful. I mean, some of the gods that we have today, 
sexuality. Right? That's probably one of the greats of our time and space, the time in which we live, this idea that I am in some way comprised primarily of my sexuality, and I'm not a full person unless I'm living my sexuality out in its fullness. That's an idolatry. An idol not made of gold or silver, but no less damning and destructive. I suspect it probably perhaps even more dangerous for Christians are the areas where we take good things and we elevate them to the greatest of things. One of the ones that I think is probably so sneaky, so sneaky, is even, and I'll say for, particularly for like ladies, is to let the idea of being mom actually becomes so great that it is the defining nature of who you are. That motherhood becomes your identity instead of Christ. It's, it's, it's those areas where we let good things become the definitive thing of who we are. Now you may be going, oh, I'm, I'm a bit confused by that, Michael. I don't understand what you mean. Well, it, it's probably easiest done this way. Look at the things that make you the happiest or the things that make you the most irrationally angry or sad when they're taken away. And almost certainly, those are your gods. All right, what are the things that when we get them, we're, we're kind of disproportionately happy and I don't mean like I haven't eaten in you know, five hours and I'm hangry and I get some food and I feel better. I mean, what are the things that, that make our heart leap or the things that are irrationally sad when they're taken away? Right? For young men, there's always that temptation for entertainments to fill the way, right? Our video games or our playing outside as a parent, those are the things often that we use to discipline our children, don't we? We find the things that make them sad, and that's what we have them do. We take away the things that make them happy so that they learn the lessons. But then as we get it to be an adult, it's like we forget that, oh yeah, that same, that same principle is happening in my heart. There are things in my heart that make me disproportionately happy because I've, I've given myself over to them. Or things that make me disproportionately sad. Maybe it's our pride. And we get unreasonably angry when somebody critiques us. Friends, you should be able to have a cool, calm, and collected conversation with somebody when they insult you. Right? You should be able to do that. If they come to you and insult you and say, you are a bad person for these reasons, you should be able to have a cool, calm, and collected conversation about, why is that true or how? Help me understand. Maybe you can't. Your pride, your ego have taken over. We should be able to engage the realities of our world and of our life. without being so constantly overwhelmed because our identity is in Christ. Look at the things that don't make you happy. Well, he's not done talking, and I love this. Uh, realistically, if we kind of contemplate that he is the God who carries us, 
And he's the God that is actively mighty to save. He's capable. You have to go, well, what are you saving me to? What are, you, what are you doing for me? What is your plan for me? And that's verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. Listen to me, you wicked people. Listen to me, those of you that have those heart problems, that know that you have those idolatry problems, those of you that are aware of those false gods in your heart, those of you that are aware of those temptations that you've given yourself over to, those of you that are aware of those sins that you hate, but you cannot figure out how to get rid of them. Those of you that are mortified, that your search history will be found out before it gets cleared when you're dead. Listen to me, all of you. I'm in the business of salvation. I bring my righteousness near. It's not far off and my salvation will not delay. Now, he's talking here in the short term about Cyrus who's going to come in with the Medes and the Persians, but ultimately, I will put salvation in Zion. I will be the God who saves. I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel is my glory. I love this. He's the saving God. The God who redeems from the pit. The God who conquers the the grave. Hell itself. And weirdly enough, this is a thing that I think the church needs to be very busy about today. Constantly talking about, constantly reminding is that He is the God who saves from ourselves. We are a culture currently as a nation that is so in love with ourselves that we're giving ourselves over to our pleasures and our pleasures are poisonous. We're giving ourselves over to our joys and delights, and our joys and delights are cancerous. We are actively, as a nation, killing ourselves. And, in fact, we're actively, as a nation, killing ourselves so effectively that we've done it in such a way that it it has kind of promoted a hopelessness that seems irredeemable. And you think, well, I mean, what does that mean? A hopelessness that seems irredeemable. It means that uh, your largest cause of death now for young people is no longer car accidents. It's self-inflicted. You're talking about for young men, the largest cause of death is now no longer even drugs. It's self-inflicted. Because we have a nation that sees no way out of the misery. A nation that has more affluence than ever, the nation that's able to buy our pleasures more easily than ever, a nation who is constantly at this point legislating access to our pleasures, and the more we do it, the less they satisfy. And we don't know how to get out. So we need to be busy. As a church, telling friends and neighbors, telling particularly a younger generation. What is it, the 18 to 34 range? I think right now 14% of them uh, in the United States right now, between 18 and 34, 14% of them claim Christianity. 14%. We're looking at an entire generation that's gone. And I think part of it is this. 
They've been given over to their idols. They've seen the burdens those idols are and have yet to find the hope that is in Christ Jesus. To be able to talk about the redeeming hope of Christ that what he did on the cross was to pay for sin and death and hell, but not just to conquer sin and death and hell, but to buy me the good life now. Not a life captured by my wallet Not a life defined by my sexuality, not a life dominated by my affluence, but a life that's dominated by freedom in Jesus. I don't have to be defined by my fears. I don't have to be defined by my regrets. I don't have to be defined by my sorrows, but defined by the life to come. And 47 really kind of begins to work that out. It's rather graphic, honestly. It's really largely what we got to see on the news this week from Hamas. That the Lord's going to defeat the enemies of God and He's going to do it in gruesome and grim ways. That victory will be complete and total. It will be comprehensive and victorious. There will be nothing that stands in the way of our God. He will destroy our enemies. Friends, it's important that we labor together to grow in Christ because this is one of those things I I don't understand if you get how important it is for our evangelistic efforts to be able for us to live the free and good life and invite others into it. Right? That we live that transformed life marked by gentleness and joy and hope and gladness and to invite others into it. Friend, come along. I know you're miserable right now. I know a place where the misery goes away. I know the one who changes his people. I know the one who makes us new. Brothers and sisters, I would ask and encourage uh, as we go forward, uh, this is, I think, we're looking at a a kind of a major turning point in U.S. history. As we make the, the change from my generation beginning to lead the church to the generation that's coming after mine, we are going to need some very aggressive evangelism. And that very aggressive evangelism is going to need to be more than simply get out of hell free card. But it's an invitation to the good life that God alone gives. One that's not dominated by money or sex or pleasure or the internet or identity. But one that is dominated by the eternal things that are unshakable and grounded and given in the salvation of Jesus Christ. That he went to the cross to accomplish that which cannot be changed so that we will be changed. And that we be busy about that and busy inviting the next generation in. That at least in this part of the world, we might be fighting the trend the church, and the way she is going. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises.
We thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.